Some players think trading is the toughest part of fantasy baseball. We'll ask Fred Zinke, MLB.com's lead fantasy writer and the most active trader in Tout Wars, all about trading and more, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 7th. It's show number 40 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Tuesday Tout show for you. We'll talk with Fred Zinke. He's the lead fantasy writer at MLB.com and easily the most active trader in Tout Wars. We'll ask Fred about trading, about the most valuable player in fantasy right now, his facts and flukes, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Analyst Rob Gordon is taking a break this week, so there'll be no minor league minute, but we do have our playing time commentary with Ryan Bloomfield looking at the moving pieces in Tampa Bay's rotation. And in our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Clint Robinson, Eric Johnson, and Micah Johnson. It's another big Tuesday tout show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? I think we know the secret of successful trading. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Okay, there's more to it than that. That's why we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, it's our feature expert interview with the lead fantasy writer at MLB.com and the most active trader in Tout Wars, Fred Zinke. Fred, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. It has, and I'm really glad to be back. How are your fantasy teams doing? I know how you're doing in Tout Wars. Yeah, Tout Wars hasn't gone so hot this year, uh, which has been frustrating. I think this is the first time I've ever owned a team where I, I keep feeling like I'm making the right moves, and then they're just not working out. And I've had a knack for trading four players who are hot and then cool off, or trading away players who are cold and then heat up. Uh, labor, I'm doing a lot better. I'm in third place, and I think I have... I guess you could say a puncher's chance at getting to the top by the end of the season. And, of course, you play fantasy daily baseball. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But you, you live in the Toronto area, Fred. I know you look at the Blue Jays closely. Did you not have some uh, coverage responsibilities through MLB.com for the Jays at one point? Uh, no, not specifically for the Jays, but I do uh, attend a lot of their games for them and uh, you know, sometimes use it to check out a lot of the visiting players that come into town, and right. I obviously follow them you know, a lot closer than I follow any other team, so I'm pretty in tune with everything that happens with them. I know you had a question about the Jays' Roberto Osuna, the new closer there, who seems to only get like four or five out saves. It's kind of weird how they're doing that, but uh, you said, though, that you would drop Hector Rondon for Roberto Osuna, so give us your take on Osuna and his potential as a closer for the balance of the year. I think, actually, I think maybe that the answer to that question was more of an indictment on Rondon than, uh, than a credit to Osuna. But I think Osuna can be a good closer for the Blue Jays, you know, going forward. I think he has the skill set. I know he's really young. Uh, they don't have any alternatives. I think he can collect a fair amount of saves. You know, save chances are fickle, but he could collect a fair amount of save cha- uh, saves during July. I think that the Cubs and the Blue Jays are two of the most likely teams to trade for Papelbon or Francisco Rodriguez or someone to take over the ninth inning by August. Basically, I think I felt like Osuna can collect saves during July. Rondon, I think his time may have come, and maybe it'll be Mott or just kind of a committee before maybe they add another player and, and settle on a more experienced veteran. But, uh, yeah, I think Osuna could 
take the job, but I know being here in Toronto that there's a lot of pressure on Alex Anthopoulos to shake up that pitching staff, and the bullpen might be a cheaper way to do it than the rotation. But also a less effective way. I mean, the, their problem isn't really the bullpen. Their problem is they're just not getting decent starting pitching, and you can't fix that by you know adding in a what would be a 35 inning guy, 35 innings for the rest of the year if you acquire a, a closer at this point or near it. Yeah, no, very true. But I did, I wonder. Uh, Anthopoulos has always been so tough to trade away those really good pitching prospects. He really did get burned in the Dickey trade. Um, yes. You know where Dickey hasn't really turned out, and Syndergaard's looking really good. Uh, I wonder if he's going to go back to that well and give up what you'll really need to give up to get started. Like, this is a seller's market this season for sure, where, like a lot of deadlines have been. He's going to have to maybe part with Daniel Norris or someone with a lot of potential to get the starter he needs, and I'm not sure if he's going to do that or not, because if he doesn't, they have a really nice young rotation set up for the next few years. And what do you think it would cost him to get a uh, Papelbon or Francisco Rodriguez as a closer? That's not going to come cheap either, is it? No, but it's got, I have to think it's less than, you know, going Johnny Cueto or something like that. Uh, you know, maybe he can avoid the, the pitchers that can, uh, you know, that can really help the team in the next year. Maybe they can dip into the low minors a bit or maybe package like Matt Boyd, who I know had a really rough major league debut, but his pitch well in the minors. Maybe they could combine him with another prospect or something to get relief help. I think the, the overall cost will be less. Uh, yeah, the, the interesting thing about the Blue Jays rotation I've noticed is you know, some of the guys like Drew Hutchison are really fly ball pitchers that aren't really built to pitch in Rogers Center. So sometimes I wonder if he would be better off to deal one of those guys to a team that has a better home park for that kind of a pitcher and, and you know, replace the current starter with a current starter rather than dipping into his best prospects. Right, because there's some, there is some value the Blue Jays could send away a young pitcher like Hutchison who's dollar-controlled for another couple of years. He doesn't hit his free agency for even longer than that. So even a straight swap would benefit the acquiring team because they would get some contract certainty that they're not going to get if they're trading away a Johnny Cueto. Uh, for instance, Cincinnati's a bad example of a flyball ballpark, of course, but if somebody out there uh, uh, has a, a starting pitcher they're looking at trading, they might not necessarily want wanted Daniel Norris if they had a Hutchison who's at least proved that he can pitch in the major leagues, although he's been certainly uneven. Sure. If you, you put him in a place like San Diego and he could be a whole different pitcher, uh, and then you get those NLS road games in Los Angeles and San Francisco, he can make a lot of starts. The AL East is tough on fly ball pitchers, which we've seen with him, with Dickey. You know, you might see that with Estrada at some point this season. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just tough. The Rogers Center is hard to pitch in, and so are a lot of the road parks in that division. Returning to the idea of a closer trade, we've talked about uh, Papelbon and Francisco Rodriguez. They are the top two likely trade uh, trade outs, uh, for want of a better term, because their teams are going nowhere fast. But because of the wild card, there are so many teams that think they're in it. It seems like the the uh, opportunity to acquire a proven closer is going to be somewhat limited, and there are going to be a lot of suitors. And I wonder how dear it's going to be to acquire a Papelbon or to acquire a Francisco Rodriguez in terms of, I know they're not starters and they shouldn't fetch as much as a, a top starter would fetch, but you know, when you've got a lot of people looking for a limited supply, sometimes the price goes up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this could be a good year. Now, because I'm kind of a trader in, in fantasy, I think I, I have a trading mindset towards real major league teams too, but I, I think this might be a good year for a team who's kind of sitting on the bubble and really doesn't have a great chance to make the postseason or, or do much while they get there to join the seller's market because the price you can get for your assets by the end of July 
might outweigh taking that like five percent chance on getting into the wild card you know game and and you might be left with some really key pieces that that you can use next season uh, you mentioned a percentage chance. What percentage chance do you think there is that the Blue Jays will acquire a closer uh, sometime near the deadline? Oh, I'd say, I'm going to say that there's probably uh, probably about an 80% chance they acquire a pitcher. And out of that, you know, I'm going to say it's probably maybe about two-thirds more like, like two-thirds likeliness out of that that it'll be a starter and about a third that it'll be a reliever. And I guess there is a chance that they could acquire both and really try to make their run while they have all these great hitters. So, you know, thinking about Osuna, maybe there's a two-thirds chance that he's still the closer on August 1st and a one-third chance, you know, one-third chance that he isn't, something like that. Well, I hope uh, I hope you're right because I have Osuna in the Tout Wars mixed auction, and I'm dead last in saves by design. But I'm hoping maybe I could sneak in, sneak a point or two, or have a trade chip to deal at the deadline uh, in Tout Wars as well. If Osuna turns out to be a, a closer for the balance of the year, or maybe even before, who knows? Well, you and I can talk about it. Maybe you can get Roberto Osuna off me. Uh, Fred, uh, another one of my pitchers in Tout Wars is Mark Burley, and on May first. He gave up eight ones and just four and a third at Cleveland, and his ERA shot up to 675, and his whip was just under two at 195. Jays fans, Burley owners in fantasy, were saying he should be taken out of the rotation, maybe disemboweled or something like that. But since that game, as you know, Burley's been fantastic. He has an ERA of 253, a whip under one at 093. How do you feel about Mark Burley for the balance of the season? Uh, I'm not, I can say I'm not that excited about him. I think he's He's one of those players who has a lot more value to a real major league team than to a fantasy team, just because the strikeout rate's pretty mediocre. And I, I feel like since he's been on the Blue Jays, uh, he's gone through stretches each season where he gets really hot. And, you know, he had that one stretch early in the season where he won, you know, 10 games. I forget if that was last year or the year before. I think it was last year and, uh, you know, and was really dealing for a while. But then he always seems to tend to level off and the whip comes in around 1.3 and change. And, you know, his ERA is solid. I think he's useful, uh, but combined with the low strikeout rate and all the hard opponents that he's going to have to face in the second half in the American League, you know, I'm, he's not someone I get excited about. I think deep mixed leagues he's useful. Shallow mixed leagues, I think I'd probably just ignore the hot stretch and leave him on waivers. It'll probably run out at some point. When you say a deep mixed versus a shallow, how many teams are you talking? Yeah, I usually think a deep mix is 15, shallow is 10, and then 12 kind of bridges the gap is you know, more shallow than deep to me, but I think in 12, I'd still probably leave my waivers, but it would depend a little bit of the makeup of your roster. You know, if you had some pitcher injuries right now or some guys who are really struggling and you wanted to bench them and maybe Burley makes sense, you go with them for a couple of weeks and maybe he can kind of bridge the gap until one of your struggling pitchers gets back on track. In the Toronto area where you live, Fred, uh, and not far from where I live, uh, the Blue Jays signed a, an international player, with uh, deep resonance for Canadian baseball fans, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to an international deal. Uh, has there been much talk about Vladimir Guerrero as a prospect for the Jays uh, since that signing? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I was when they signed him, I was a little skeptical. The Toronto media jumped on it, and obviously, you know, with the name value, and then you know, with uh, you know, Vlad Guerrero having played for the Expos, he had the Canadian tie-in, and uh, I believe he was actually born in Canada while his dad was here playing. And so he had some like, a great story. So when the story first came out, I thought, oh, maybe this is just the local media jumping on a great story. Maybe this kid's not really a great prospect. He's more of a name than a prospect. But the more research I did, 
uh, and listening to some of the experts on the international prospects, it seems like he is a really good prospect, and he is very far away from you know putting on a Blue Jays uniform and playing at Rogers Center. Uh, but down the road, he's someone that dynasty owners will, will want to keep an eye on. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Fred Zinke from MLB.com. And, Fred, you have one of the most active Twitter feeds of anybody that I know, at uh, Fred Zinke, M-L-B, Z-I-N-K-I-E. I, should, I guess I should say, since most of our listeners are American, Z-I-N-K-I-E. But one way or the other is Fred Zinke, M-L-B, at uh, Twitter feed. You answer an awful lot of questions, and I'd like to go over a few of them. Uh, somebody asked you about Francisco Lindor, and you said, and I quote, I don't expect great things from him. So what what does that mean? What do you expect from Francisco Lindor? Yeah, I think I think he's just for this season, you know, a replacement level type hitter. Uh, he's going to get regular at bats. You know, he'll have his moments, uh, but I don't really see him like hitting the ground running. He's not a like a hit like from an offensive perspective. He's not an elite prospect. Now he is an elite prospect. He's got a great glove. He plays a premium position with with being a shortstop. Um, you know, so so he is a great prospect, and I think down the road he will be. A good fantasy asset, but the for questions directed towards one-year leagues, I just don't see much in his profile. When you look at his minor league numbers, he's not an elite base stealer, at least not yet. Uh, he is apparently quite fast, but he hasn't really fared well stealing bases even in the minors. Base stealing is one way that a, a young player can make a really fast impact in the majors. You see some someone like Billy Burns like that who can come up and, and contribute a lot of fantasy value right away. Um, with Lindor, you aren't going to get that. You haven't seen a lot of power yet. His power should develop. He's still really young. Uh, so long-term, I think he can be fine. But right now, he's someone to use, you know, 15-team mixed leagues. I'd want to own him. In shallow mixed leagues, I wouldn't, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't bother unless, you know, you just need him for short-term injury replacement or something. That also applies to any kind of single-league format where he's a, almost a must-own, right? Sure. I mean, I, in, in AL-only leagues, I often say, you know, kind of anyone with a pulse, yeah. Uh, you know, anyone who's on a roster and getting regular at bats is is pretty much a must own. Like you need to be a really poor hitter to be an everyday player in an a- and not have value in an AL or NL only league. So yeah, absolutely in those leagues, uh, you know, he he's worth owning. But he might have more value in those leagues as a trade chip based on his you know high high prospect status than he does actually in your lineup. And certainly tremendous value in keeper leagues for that reason when uh, the dump trading season really gets going in full. Uh, Fred, talking of Francisco Lindor, what is your general philosophy about call-ups and other untried, untested young players, especially in a year like this when so many seemingly top talents are getting called up? Yeah, I do I do uh, use their minor league stats more than I used to, uh, but I still weigh fairly heavily on looking at um, the lineup they're joining and what kind of support they're going to have around them, and around them, and where I think they'll hit in the lineup. I think some of those things can help a young player either hit the ground running or struggle. Now, someone like Mikel Franco on the Phillies, he kind of kind of bucked that trend for me, where he was joining a really poor offense, but he's done really well, anyways, and good for him. He does have a nice home park that helps too. I think with a lot of the young players, we're dealing with so much of an unknown as far as how they'll adjust to the majors, and there's really hard. It's really hard to predict that. So instead, I try to look at all the factors that they do understand around them, home park, lineups, you know, spot in the batting order. Uh, and like I said, if I do have a lean, it would be towards base stealers because I feel like that's a, a skill that can be transferred quite quickly to the majors. And, and, it doesn't, and it doesn't, nowadays with steals, it doesn't take that many steals. If a guy can come up and get you, you know, hit for decent average and get you one steal a week, 
you know, along the way, get some runs in RBIs, then he, he's already a factor in mixed leagues. Something else I like to look at in these call-up situations is how much talent is there behind this guy at his position? That is, you know, if, if the team is really stuck for somebody to play shortstop or to play third base or something because of injury or because of poor performance, is there somebody else in that roster situation that if the call-up player struggles, the team can feel comfortable going to somebody else? And is, In other words, how easily is he replaced? Yeah, absolutely. If you're, if you're, especially if you're if you're in a fab league and you're putting a lot, a lot of your resources into it, or if you're in a, you know, a league with waiver priority and you're cashing in like the top waiver priority, uh, you want to be pretty sure that even if that player has a bad week and hits 120 for a week, that they're going to stay in the lineup and keep their spot and, and won't just be returned to AAA or you know, put on the bench for a while. And I've talked about this on the show, with, uh, especially with our minor league guys, and uh, something that they always focus on as well, and I think it's a smart idea, is how successful is the organization at developing, uh, integrating, and, and getting useful production out of players? And uh, there are certainly organizations that are really good at doing this, and there are certainly organizations that are not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with that, from that perspective, I would use that even more with pitchers because there seem to be certain organizations, whether it's the Rays, the Athletics, you know, there's certain organizations that seem to do a really good job developing effective young pitchers. And if they believe a kid's ready, then I'm probably just going to give them the benefit of the doubt and at least put the kid on my roster and then we'll, we'll go from there. Whereas some other organizations, like you said, like rush guys to the majors or maybe just don't have the coaching to, to properly develop them when they get there. And, and and in the minor league organization itself, uh, teams, of course, are investing a lot more in the development of young players because they are so valuable due to the the, uh, the bargaining agreement and the major league contract, which says if you bring this guy up young, you're going to get six years of relatively low cost, therefore high profit uh, performance out of him before you have to start paying him. I'm, of course, uh, the Marlins have made a something of a of a fine point out of this. I wouldn't argue that they're that good at developing players, but certainly a team recognizes that there's a lot of value to be had in these young players, and so they seem to be, the smart ones anyway, seem to be investing an awful lot of money in developing them, and the key is find those organizations and lean more towards their prospects than, say, some of the other ones who historically aren't so good at it. Yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. Another Twitter question asked you if uh, you would trade for Paul Goldschmidt, and you said, I would trade anybody for Paul Goldschmidt, and you even mentioned Max Scherzer, who's having a fantastic year as a pitcher. Uh, I, I own Goldschmidt in tout. I agree with you about his value. Being willing to trade anyone for Goldschmidt implies that you think he's the best fantasy player in the game right now. Uh, give us your positive assessment of Paul Goldschmidt overall. Yeah, I do. I, if we were drafting for the rest of 2015, I would take him over Mike Trout and anyone else. Uh, and I'm of the mindset right now, I, th- I think he will be the first pick overall in 2016 drafts, which, uh, you know, I would have bet the farm that it would have been Trout, you know, for a couple of years, at least, you know, maybe even three or four years from here. But uh, Trout's not running, and Goldschmidt is, and that's one of the biggest differences between the two. Uh, right now, Goldschmidt, I think, got 15 steals. Trout's at nine or so, and a lot of Trout's came in April. Um, it, it's hard to believe that Goldschmidt's the one who's running the bases more aggressively than Trout, but he is. And then you combine that with, you know, elite power. Uh, I think Arizona's first or second in the National League and runs scored, so he's in a good lineup. He has a nice hitter's park at home. Uh, he kind of has everything right now. I think he's the best asset in fantasy. And, uh, yeah, I, I would trade any single player for him.
and probably going to cost you more than a single player, I, I'm going to guess. What uh, what really has been tremendously valuable as a fantasy asset in um, the Tout Wars scenario is the, the on-base percentage of Goldschmidt is well above 400, and I think he may lead all of baseball. Absolutely. He, like, there really aren't any holes in his game right now. If, there, you know, if you could give one knock on his fantasy value, it's that he's a first baseman, and that's a, a pretty deep position where you can find usually find other assets, but I mean, that's about as minor of a knock as, as you can have on a player, and uh, yeah, there's, there's really nothing, uh, you know, I, I, I can't see any reason not to want him over any player, other player for the rest of the season. I sit corrected, uh, Bryce Harper apparently at 474, Goldsmith at 466, uh, Bryce Harper, man, a 474 on base percentage covers up a lot of problems. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, Bryce Harper would probably be my probably number three fantasy asset behind Trout. Uh, but he doesn't have the steals to really to match Goldschmidt either. But yeah, what Bryce Harper's done is, is tremendous. I also view maybe Goldschmidt as a little safer in the sense of he had been a really, really good player the whole way through, like leading into this season, and now has gone up one, gone up another level where it's right. like we all knew Harper's potential, but he's really gone up a lot this season. So maybe he's a little more likely than Goldschmidt to give back a, a bit of those gains in the second half. But I mean, again, that's, that's nitpicking. Like, uh, like Harper's, I think, top three asset uh, the rest of the way. And of course, you have to keep in mind that Bryce Harper's 22 and Goldschmidt is 27. So they, you know, Bryce Harper seems to have a long head start on him insofar as age is concerned. For sure. And, you know, in a keeper league, you would probably rather have, you would, I would rather have Bryce Harper, I'd say, than Goldschmidt just because you'll get more years of elite production out of him. Goldschmidt's in his prime. Harper's still probably a few years away from it. So, uh, so yeah, in a keeper league, you know, Harper. But in a one-year league, I think just everything points me to Goldschmidt. And in 2016, you really can't go wrong with either of them or Mike Trout, really. And Anthony Rizzo's kind of making a case for himself. For sure. Uh, and Rizzo's like Goldschmidt in the sense that he's boosted his value a bit by stealing more bases. Uh, Rizzo's power numbers are good this year. They're not incredible, but they're good. Uh, but he's a terrific, with the extra steals, like he's a five-category producer. He should be, he'll be a top ten pick next year and could be a top five pick. I'm going to maybe say that he's going to be just outside the top five next year, but I think he'll be safely inside the top ten. While we're on this topic, uh, over the last few years, there's been a lot of debate about the relative value of pitchers and taking them early in drafts or for big dollars in drafts. And I wonder, has this year changed your opinion on that as compared with what you thought coming into this year? In other words, uh, would you be as likely to to take a Clayton Kershaw or Max Scherzer with the second or third overall pick next year as you might have been this year? Um, I, yeah, I haven't changed my opinion on it this year. I've always been fairly pro-pitcher in the first round. I would probably take a hitter in the first five or so picks. I think I had Kershaw around fourth or so this year. I know in labor I picked second, and I took McCutcheon and uh, did heavily think about Kershaw and Goldschmidt and Stanton with those picks. But, I mean, Kershaw has been coming off, was coming off like, you know, otherworldly numbers the last, Two years, you know, heading into this year, uh, I th- I'm still fine with having, uh, you know, three or four pitchers in the first round. I do think you have to know your league a little bit. I find in some of the expert leagues, owners tend to stray away from pitchers in the early rounds and really want hitters, and that would be a good reason probably to take a hitter in the first round, knowing that you can come back with, you know, King Felix or someone like that. In labor, I took took Felix Hernandez 29th overall. That wouldn't happen in most leagues, but knowing my league mates, I knew that they were were fairly hitter heavy 
early on. In some leagues, if you know if you know that pitchers are going to fly off the board early, I would have no problems with taking someone who you think could be a top three starter in the first round. And that makes perfect sense because if you know that the pitchers are going to be there later because of the way your league historically has worked, then you can feel comfortable waiting for pitchers with everybody else, and then it becomes kind of a within-a-round kind of tactical decision. Yeah, for sure. And it, you, like Sometimes you can't know the people in your league and, and what their, their trends are like. Now, when I took Field Chanez, I was so happy because the next pick was Bryce Harper, and I thought Field Chanez is so much safer and better than Bryce Harper. Yeah. I'm so happy with that. In hindsight, I would have been better off to, to just take Bryce Harper. Uh, but, I, but I still think Felix was a good pick at the end of the second round. And just seeing his name there and Chris Sale was still there and you know, Bumgarner and all these guys, you know, after almost 30 picks, uh, it, like, knowing your league can be really valuable on draft day. How about the year uh, Chris Sale is having, by the way? Yeah, terrific. I think uh, it's so hard to debate. You, know, the, like, you can't knock, I don't think you can knock Kershaw off the top as the best you know, fantasy asset as a pitcher with what he's done over the last few years. Uh, but right behind him, like, trying to order, you know, Scherzer and Sale, and then you've got, you know, Corey Kluber, and you've got Felix Hernandez. Like, how does Felix Hernandez not get in the top three even? But you might not be able to put him in the top three right now. I think I might put Scherzer and Sale second and third. And Sale has, you know, nothing really working for him. Like, they do not have a good offense. They do not have a good defense. And he's still incredible every time out right now. A lot of strikeouts and, of course, a terrible park for a, a strikeout fly ball pitcher like he is. It's a, it's a sensational year. You can only imagine. What would he be doing uh, if he was pitching for a team in a pitcher's park that was a good ball club? Yeah, and we probably saw that with Scherzer going over to the Nationals. Like, you put him in the National League, and uh, especially in the National League East, and he's gone from really good to just, you know, completely dominant. And, yeah, if you put Sale on a team like the Nationals, it's hard to imagine what he could do. Yeah, when you have a, a, a lot of good young pitchers as well, it's starting to shake up that whole aspect of it. I was just looking the other day at the uh, baseball reference a list of pitchers, starting pitchers by ERA+, plus, which is a composite measure, and some of the names in the top ten include uh, Shelby Miller of Atlanta. I mean, who'd have thought that? Garrett Cole of Pittsburgh. We knew he was going to be pretty good. Uh, Jacob deGrom, even Giovanni Gallardo, would you believe, is 10th overall in Major League Baseball for ERA+. Plus. Absolutely. I think, I think it's gotten to the point where if you don't hit on a couple on draft day or auction day, a couple inexpensive pitchers, who turn out to be really good, then you're behind the rest of your league. I mean, you need to get the aces, too. But if you don't hit on at least one, you know, Shelby Miller, Francisco Lariano, you know, Chris Archer, those kinds of pitchers who are really good and came at a pretty reasonable price back in March, if you, if you don't get a couple of those guys, then you, you can't be at the top of your league in pitching. A.J. Burnett is fifth on that list. Ron Chandler told me before the Tout Wars draft, A.J. Burnett's going to have a great year, and you should really try to get him, and I really didn't. I got outbid because he was so far towards the end game, but by then we were all down to 3 or $4, and, and uh, A.J. Burnett went for $3, I think, and I only had 2 And uh, he's the kind of guy that you really, like you said, this is the kind of guy you exactly want on your roster because you're going to get near first-round performance for a 20th-round price. Absolutely, and it, it makes I know it makes some people say, you know, to not invest in the Scherzers and just – save your money and, you know, invest in all those cheaper pitchers. I think you still need the aces to kind of anchor your staff, but because somebody is going to get Scherzer and, or David Price, and then they're also going to get Burnett or Lariano or both, and, and then that person is the person who's going to dominate the pitching in your league.
Speaking of pitchers, uh, there was a question to your Twitter feed about two Tommy John recovery guys coming back into baseball, Patrick Corbin and Matt Moore, and you said you prefer Corbin. Yeah, I'm, I've been throwing cold water all over Matt Moore supporters for the last, I feel like, the last six weeks because he's a really popular Twitter topic as far as people were stashing him. Um, I have no problems with Matt Moore maybe long-term, uh, but when I looked at him and I, and I thought about him coming back from the injury, his career whip is 1.33. Uh, which is not impressive at all. And in its poor control, a lot of walks that have really made his whip so high. And, uh, you know, there's a fairly lengthy track record of pitchers not being at their best when they initially come back from Tommy John surgery. And I felt like if you take more and you make his control that he showed pre-injury any worse, then you've got a pitcher who's a detriment in fantasy. And that was really my concern with him. I'm not so much in love with Corbin and think that he's going to be great the rest of the year. I think he could be solid. Uh, but more I just wasn't buying into. Maybe in 2016 he gets a little further away from, from the surgery and gets some more innings under his belt. But he wasn't a consistent mixed league asset before the injury. And I, I, but he's always had a lot of name value. And I think people are like, you know, kind of the absence makes the heart grow fonder, and people see the name, and he's been away for a while, and the Rays are good at pitching, and thought that he's just going to come back and start throwing seven shutout innings. And hey, maybe I'll be wrong, and he'll start doing that. But what I saw his first trip out is, is kind of what I expected, where he's a little erratic and, and didn't go deep into the game. You know, Matt Moore's uh, control has always been a problem for me too, and uh, he's—I play in an American League only league. I play in Tout, and anytime there's been you know trade talks banding around Matt Moore, I just look at him and think. I don't think I want this guy. His walk rate has consistently been above four in all of his big league seasons, his full big league seasons. And something else that I always keep an eye on as far as walk rates are concerned is I'm also curious about hit batsmen and wild pitches because these are events that don't get ca- uh, captured in the you know the walk per nine rates and the, and the strikeout per walk rates and so forth that we all look at and, and, and we all should. But if you add in wild pitches and hit batsmen, all of a sudden, you're, when you're looking at Matt Moore, you're looking at, in 2012, 15 extra wildness events. And in 2013, when he was a Cy Young top 10 guy, 21 different uh, wildness events. And every one of those wildness events, a wild pitch or a hit batsman, increases the chance of ERA because you're moving guys along with the wild pitch. Otherwise, it's not scored a wild pitch. And in the case of hit batsman, of course, you're, you're putting a guy on. And none of it shows up in the sort of regular mainstream wildness statistics. For sure, and, uh, and Moore is someone who really bucks the trend in the sense that we've already mentioned the Rays being so good at developing pitchers, and here's someone who you know, allegedly has elite talent, but they haven't really been able to get him to be the elite pitcher that a lot of people thought he could be coming into the majors. And then along the way, we've seen them develop pitchers who were considered to be less talented, like Alex Cobb, you know, who's out now, but before he was out, you know, into a much better pitcher than Moore. So Moore kind of flies in the face of what we expect from the Rays. And, you know, maybe long-term I'd give them the benefit of the doubt a bit and, and think that the Rays can, can get him to where they need him to be. But so far it hasn't happened, and it has happened for a lot of pitchers around him. So you kind of wonder, well, what's the issue there? And before we leave this topic, uh, Fred, I'm sure that you would rather have Jose Fernandez than either Corbin or Moore. How high are you on Jose Fernandez coming back from Tommy John? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say I'm high on him. I expect you know, like elite ratios, you know, an ERA around three, a whip, you know, 1.1 or lower for the rest of the season. I think he'll be very good. I think he can strike out a batter an inning or a little little more than that. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to be a little bit 
muted with my excitement for him for just for the rest of 2015 in the sense of I think the Marlins will probably keep his pitch count fairly low in a lot of his starts, and then their offense is poor, and then on top of their offense being poor, they're missing by far their best player with Stanton being out for the next several weeks. So I could see him struggling to get enough wins to keep up with the other aces, and you know if he's throwing six innings well, Corey Kluber's throwing eight, then it's going to be hard for him to keep up in the, you know in strikeouts. Uh, I think for the rest of this season, I kind of view him as a really good as a good number two starter in a mixed league. Next year, I think he could be an ace again when they probably you know take the gloves off him a little more. But I think like he he's just an elite talent. If you're the Marlins and you're out of the race, I don't see why you push him for the rest of the season though. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's absolutely no benefit to them for doing that except adding risk to his profile. I'm sure they're going to use this half season as a chance to get him tuned up and ready to go for next year. And uh, for that reason, he might not be the great play that that a lot of people think. So be wary of anybody who's offering you Jose Fernandez, unless you're in a keeper league. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, for sure. And Yeah, he's probably a tough guy to trade right now. The owner who has him has been waiting for him. And probably is excited to use him and it's probably going to require you know what you would pay to get an ace in return for him and for me if i was going to pay what it would take to get an ace then i would just go out and get david price or something like who's healthy and and consistent and is playing on a better you know with a better lineup to support him i I, for that the only time i think you really with fernandez on the trade market might be if there was an owner who had him all season and is getting him back now but already has established a pitching staff that is good enough so he's looking to trade Fernandez and maybe doesn't need him. Then maybe he can get him at a more reasonable cost. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Fred Zinke from MLB.com. And Fred, uh, you're known in Tout Wars Mixed Auction League and in your other leagues as the most active trader among the owners. Uh, in all the time you've been playing fantasy baseball, have you always been an active trader, even from the start? Not really. I think that's kind of evolved with me over the years. I'm definitely not afraid to make trades, and I don't take a lot of time usually to sit and think about them. Uh, like, I t- like, I really like fantasy baseball, and I take it seriously, and I try my best to do well in it, and obviously all those trades take a lot of time. But at the same time, I recognize that it's a game, uh, and if I make a trade and that doesn't work out, and I've made some that don't work out, you know, they don't take your house away or your kids or your wife or your mortgage or anything. So, you know, I'm not hesitant to make trades or to engage in trade talks. And if I see something out there that I want or if I feel like I have an asset that somebody else might want more than I want it, uh, then I'm not afraid to just go out there and you know, get my phone in the water and start marketing around it. And if somebody comes back with something that looks good to me, then I don't usually take very long to firm up a deal and, and then move ahead. So what I'm really excited about in the Tet Wars League is there are a lot of trades now. And I felt like the first year when I was in the league, I felt like I was making a lot of trades, but there weren't a lot of a lot of other trades around between other owners. And now I see a lot of owners making a lot of trades, which I, because I like trading, I think is awesome because it means, you know, guys are communicating with each other. They're, they're taking the league seriously. They're being active and they're having a lot of fun with it. This year, uh, Nando DeFino, who's in the Tell Wars Mixed as well, is tied with you for most trades, which is something fairly new. You've both made 14 trades. You're third in players traded away off your roster and first in players acquired a couple extra. Do you have a philosophy of trying to get two for one or more for less in in quantity, or is that just uh, something that happened this year? Yeah, I think just something that happened this year. I would say I actually have no set plan with trading. And no long-term plan. Um, like when I go into trade talks, I think that's one of the reasons I make 
so many trades is that I'm really open-minded about it. Sometimes I'll approach an owner and say, you know, I have a need in a category or at a position. You seem to have a surplus at that category position. Like, let's work from there. But really, after that point, I'm usually pretty open-minded, especially early in the season, about doing kind of anything to my roster if I feel like it's a trade I like. And that might mean trading away a player that, you know, to a lot of owners, they would say, you can't afford to trade him away, you don't have a backup for him, or trading for a player who creates a surplus at a position. I'm pretty, pretty open-minded. If, if I like the value in a two-for-one going either way, me getting two or me getting one, uh, then I'm fine with it. I'll trade away the best player in the deal. I'll get the best player in the deal. doesn't really matter to me. Uh, I just enjoy the negotiations. And then I, I, think, I think keeping an open mind, I think sometimes in the past when I've dealt with people, I felt like maybe they miss out on opportunities because they get closed-minded a little bit, and they say, oh, I can't trade like these seven players off my roster, and then that kind of ends things quickly. So I'll work from any angle, and I like to keep the discussions alive because sometimes I've had trades where I thought, you know, this is dead in the water and it's not going to happen. And then, you know, a few hours later, we've got a deal. You mentioned that you like to start by approaching somebody with, uh, I, I need uh, something from your surplus, maybe we can make a deal. Is there a typical process for you when you're setting up trades and, and doing the negotiations? Uh, not really. Sometimes, like I said, usually I'm going to approach it from one of two angles. I'm going to approach it from, you know, I really need a uh, second baseman, and I've noticed that you have a decent second baseman on your bench, so, you know, are you interested in trading that one on your bench or the one in your starting lineup? And then I, I, some might ask the owner, you know, who, do you, who interests you on my team? I think it's a, a tough, it's maybe a waste of everyone's time for you to start offering the person a bunch of players that they aren't interested in. So, so often I'll ask the other owner, you know, could you give me a few names off my roster that, that pique your interest, and then we can kind of work from there. Or I might feel like I have a surplus, the other, the other way I'll often approach is feel, you know, I have a surplus of starting pitching or I have a surplus of outfielders. I'll look through the rosters, find someone who has a weak outfielder in their starting lineup, go to them and say, you know, tell me an outfielder out of my starting lineup that really piques your interest, and then we'll go from there. And at that point, I might not have any sort of end game target off their roster. I just know that my surplus probably meets their needs. Let's see if we can figure out something that, that they're happy with and that I like the value coming back. I can't think of any examples in baseball because it doesn't lend itself in the in the way that I'm thinking. But in basketball, there's a theory that says the uh, the smart general managers just accumulate assets, not necessarily to put them on the court, but maybe to uh, trade along at some future point and so forth. And I I wonder, do you approach when you're thinking of the trade that you're looking at making with an, with another particular owner? Is it ever the case that you're just looking to get something because you have something you can trade away that you think it may not pay immediate dividends but may be able to trade for something you do need a little more down the road? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like you said, it's about getting assets because you really can't project what's going to happen with your roster. And I've always said that fantasy baseball is just this, you know, annual ritualized exercise where you make a perfect plan and then you execute it at the beginning of the season on draft day, and then you just watch it fall apart in various ways throughout the season, whether it's slumps or injuries. So to, you know, to sit and look at your roster and say, oh, I don't need a first baseman because I have this guy, or I don't need starting pitching because I have these guys, I think is kind of foolish because you just don't know what can happen. You, know, you lose a guy to an injury, 
or someone hits a slump and all of a sudden you do have a need. So I'll tend to, that's why I like to be open-minded about it. You might think that you don't need steals because you have Jacoby Ellsbury. Next thing you know, he spends two and a half months on the disabled list or whatever it's been. And all of a sudden you have a great need for steals and you're kicking yourself because you had a pretty good value in a trade back in April. And you said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't really need the steals. So yeah, get assets and then work from there. If you have assets, you can always trade them to somebody else if, you know, if, if you decide down the road that you really, really don't need them. Well, and that's particularly true if you're in a league where lots of guys trade. You have to be cautious if your league's culture is that there isn't a lot of trading. My American League only league is maybe four trades, five trades every year. There's more in the preseason because of our dumping rules. But uh, in season, it, it be, just be aware of your league's history and your league's culture because you may amass assets you think you can trade later and you can't because nobody trades yep definitely true that's that's for sure all part of knowing your league and know the specific people in your league you you might know people within your league who will trade and people who won't and you might you know make a trade saying well i can probably flip this extra starter that i now have to this owner but if you've been in your league for a few years you might know that that owner is just not usually uh, you know really interested in making trades so maybe that's not a good plan whereas if you're flipping the starter to a different guy in your league who is typically active in the trade market, then that probably is something you can make happen. I got a sense of a contradiction in something you said just a moment ago, Fred. Earlier on, uh, you said that, you know, you look at your roster and you say, I've got a surplus here, a surplus there. I'll offer it to somebody who could use it or, or look at his roster for a surplus that he has. And then a moment ago, uh, you cautioned that, you can't be sure of anything because as soon as you trade your top steals guy, your next steals guy gets hurt and you don't have steals anymore. So uh, how do you adjust that balance to, at one point, get handle your surpluses intelligently while being aware that it, what looks like a surplus on Tuesday is going to be a deficit on Friday? Yeah, for sure. And you're right. I, I had one moment in Tower this year where I, was, I, I had a surplus of outfielders and was trying hard to trade one away didn't find a deal that I liked, was kind of annoyed that I had this surplus, felt like I was wasting a good outfielder on my bench. Sure enough, like three days later, Matt Holiday gets hurt, and I have to use my surplus to replace him, and all of a sudden there goes my surplus. Uh, I, I, when I say, yeah, if you're trading from that surplus, I think you owe it to yourself if you have a surplus to at least look around the league and see if you can use that surplus to get good value. Be, and if you can use that surplus to get good value, then you want to use it. You shouldn't trade away a surplus simply because it's a surplus and get bad value. You know, if you have a, a, you know, a surplus of starting pitching, you don't need to trade Max Scherzer for, you know, just a, for Yoannis Cespedes or something like that. That's just not a good trade. Sure, you have a surplus of starting pitching, but don't make a bad trade just because it's a surplus. If you have a surplus of something, though, and you think you can use it to get good value at another position, it's very rare that you feel like you have a surplus everywhere. So you, if you can get good value at another spot, then it's probably worth looking into. The idea of value is interesting to me when we're talking about trading because uh, there's a school of thought that says, I'm not going to make a trade unless I get back a player of equivalent stature. And they define the person who owns that player defines his value by his stature or his draft cost or his round and and things of that nature. And a lot of people when they when they write about trading, uh, talking about roto experts, or when you talk to people who are really good at the game about the trades that they like to make, they say value is in the moment, and that maybe if if the deal on the table is Max Scherzer for Yoana Cespedes. On a stature value basis, it's obviously not a good trade because you're giving up a much better player than you're getting. But on the other hand, if you're, you know, two home runs, 
five RBIs and uh, six runs scored from gaining seven points in those three categories combined, maybe it is a good value, you know? Yeah, I think that applies late in the season. When you get to August and and your trade deadlines, I think that applies with – if I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it that way in June or in July because there's just still so many variables. Who knows? You can right. do home runs from Jose Altuve next week or something that you need to move up in the standings. So, but late in the season, I can see the the trades where you, where you could say, you know, okay, in April, in May, I would never make this trade, but for a six week stretch, then I think this player can help me more in the standings. The trade season in the second half of August is, I find, really wonky and. You, you, you really have to change your mindset. I'm thinking more season-long value. And, and like you said, like, value is all in the eye of the beholder. I value certain players more than you. You value certain players more than a different owner. And that's what makes the game fun. Uh, I'll think kind of season-long value more until about August. And then I, I will start to shift my focus and be willing to kind of, quote-unquote, lose a trade in order to move up in certain categories. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. Uh, to do it any earlier means you're going to have to rely on uh, on the projections. You certainly can't make a trade, I don't think, when you're looking at today's standings and think, oh, look, you know, I'm here in stolen bases. If I got 10 stolen bases, I'd jump six points because the, the season is not going to end in time for you to gain those 10 points, possibly, and so many things could change in the meantime that those 10 points might not be there. And so I know some people look at the projected standings, whether they get them from the website on Roto, I know has in that toy box feature, you can project the standings to the end, but those uh, standings tend to be relatively unreliable. Other guys just make their own, you know, put a spreadsheet together and put every guy's player in it and use those projections, but it's still the same thing. You're talking about projected standings, which are inherently unreliable reliable so at this time of the year it does indeed seem like a bit of a fool's errand to say i'm going to trade to gain five points in era because this pitcher is going to be added to my staff and he's going to shoot me up in era to this point which is where everybody else is going to be here and there and i'm going to gain points it's such a complicated mechanism that it seems like you're on the wrong track if you're using that mechanism to judge today's actions yeah agreed i think unless you're really way out in front in a certain category. I think in general, for the first four and a half months or or so of the season, trade for value and set your starting lineup for value. Set the starting lineup that you think is going to do the best this week and don't get too wrapped up in, if I can get three steals this week, then I can catch two different owners. You know, there's so many variables still and injuries and and call-ups and everything. Set the best lineup you can each week. You know, in September, if you want to try to pick up a base dealer who doesn't help in any other category, because then if you move ahead of someone in a category, you might stay ahead of them because there might only be two or three weeks left in the season for them to catch you. Uh, then I can see it. But for the rest of the season, like I said, there, there's the odd time. Maybe you own Billy Hamilton. You're so far ahead of everyone else in steals that it makes sense. Like, there's, you just aren't going to be caught as long as he's still on your roster. So you could trade away a different base dealer and, you know, and, and uh, and then and still be really confident that that you've got that category locked up. But in general, I, I still feel overall get your best lineup out there each week. You raise an interesting point. If you're a mile ahead, uh, especially later in the season, suppose you're 30 stolen bases ahead of the next guy in the stolen base category. I think you can safely or pretty comfortably offer Billy Hamilton around. And then if you do that, do you have you ever or do you ever? Uh, try to send Billy Hamilton to the roster that will do the most damage to the guys that you're chasing in the overall? You could, and I've, I have looked at that before. Then you get into, though, a pretty complicated game where 
you know, he has to want Billy Hamilton and he has to be willing to give you something back that you feel like can help you. I think in general, I'd, I'd probably still just look at who, want, who actually wants Billy Hamilton and, the, and is willing to, then that owner is going to be most likely to give me a decent return for him. And, and if I don't see the right matchup, then maybe that's where I like to think outside the box. Maybe the best option for me is to keep Hamilton and to trade the other base stealers on my team. Maybe you have, you know, a guy who, uh, like a Billy Burns or someone like that, who also, who isn't Billy Hamilton, but he's still a pretty good base stealer. You know, maybe you keep Hamilton, and he's your only base stealer you use during September. He keeps your lead, and all the other positions on your starting lineup are, are you know, used by guys who help in other areas. Also, a complication that arises from that is sometimes the guy who makes you the best offer is a guy you don't want to help. You know, if, if, if you're in first spot and the guy in second spot, you know, two points behind you says, I'll give you a really good deal for Billy Hamilton, and he's not lying. He is going to make you a good deal. But then you think, holy crow, if, if he gets Billy Hamilton, he's going to gain, he has the potential at least to gain five or six points in steals. He's going to go right by me in the overall. I can't trade him Billy Hamilton for that reason. For sure. And I've always been someone who's willing to trade with the player in first place. Like, I'll trade with the owner in first place at any point in time. Late in the season, though, then I'll... I'll be a little more hesitant to do it, and I'll at least look at the standings. I would trade with the owner in first place if I was trying to catch him, even at the end of August, uh, if I felt like the trade was good for me. But I would, act- I would at least take a second look at the standings first and say, okay, you know, it, 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 am I really just digging my own grave here by trading right. Billy Hamilton? And another option, of course, is uh, Billy Hamilton's pretty much a sink on every offensive category except steals. If you had the comfortable lead and you had Billy Hamilton, you might say to yourself, you know what, I'm just going to throw him on reserve for the rest of the year. He isn't helping me, but he also isn't helping anybody else. Meanwhile, I can get a couple of home runs from whoever I can bring up from the bench or some other useful production. For sure. He might be the most interesting value in fantasy right now in the sense that he's just so different from every other player and that he's so good in one area and not good in any other area. Fred Zinke's a tremendously successful trader, and uh, it's really been uh, interesting to talk about. It's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Fred Zinke from MLB.com. And Fred, uh, during the season, we ask our experts to talk about facts and flukes, and these are players who are outliers, for want of a better term. They're well above their expectations or well below. And, of course, the question with players who are performing in an unusual fashion relative to expectations is whether the new performance level is a fact that is, it's likely to continue, or a fluke, which means it's more likely to regress to what we had expected all along. And uh, let me ask you about some facts and flukes in the American League. Who's a hitter, who's an outlier, and is he a factor or a fluke? Uh, I'll start with uh, Jason Kipnis. Um, he's having a terrific season, obviously, uh, but his success on balls and play, you know, you could say he's been lucky this season. He's about 65 to 70 points higher his Babbitt than it's his career norm. Um, you know, that's going to put him on base more often. That's going to allow him to score more runs. His power and speed this season hasn't really been that notable. I think he's around six homers and ten steals. Um, not really that impressive in those areas. Um, and even the extra trips to first base could help him get a few more steals. So I think if we see his hit rate come down a little bit in the second half and bring the batting average down, less runs scored, owners who are going to trade for him expecting, you know, the number one or number two fantasy second baseman down the stretch, I think are going to be a little bit disappointed. It's an interesting thing to look at his uh, career track in in batting average on balls in play, especially the last few years. It's been a kind of an even year, odd year thing. In 2013, he was up around 345. Then he plummeted last year all the way to 288. And then uh, back up this year to 387. Do you believe in these even year, odd year things? 
I've never been been that big on it. I, I do believe, like, I guess, that some hitters can be inconsistent and have good years and bad years, maybe more so than some other hitters. And maybe he's one of those players. But I think even in a, even for a good year standard, he's above what we uh, would expect in that case. As you said, when when he regresses in his batting average on balls and play to even his career norm, which balances out in the 320 area, then all of a sudden you're going to see a pretty significant decline in batting average. He's batting 340 right now, which is uh, uh, way above his career norm in that regard as well. So uh, Jason Kipnis is a fluke for you. How about in the National League, a hitter? Sure, I'll, t- I'll take a fluke in the other direction, and I'll take Lucas Duda. Uh, he has really struggled lately. Um, I'm pretty optimistic that he'll break out of that at some point. Um, overall, when you look at his numbers this season, he's, he's hit pretty well. He's had a higher line drive rate this season than, uh, than in previous years. Uh, his, he's been hurt a little bit um, by his home run to fly ball percentage, and that should correct itself at some point in the second half. And we'll see a few more balls fly out of the yard. I think the line drive rate will help him to get his batting average back up. He's still a patient hitter. Uh, I think this is a great time to buy low on Duda, who could go back you know, in the second half to being the maybe close to the hitter that he was last season. It does look an awful lot like the entire problem with Lucas Duda this year is that home run per fly ball rate. His uh, career mark is 10%, which I think we pretty much ex- expect as a standard for most fly balls under most circumstances. His, his own uh, number last year was 13%. It's just barely over half that this year, so there could be a nice power surge coming from Lucas Duda. Uh, let's move over to the mound now, Fred, uh, and in the American League. Who's a pitcher who's an outlier, and is he a factor of fluke? I'll take uh, Chris Archer from the Rays, and I'm going to call him a fact. I think it's time for fantasy owners to realize that he is a top-10 starter, and he's going to be a top-10 starter going forward, and he needs to be considered in the class of the David Prices and the Corey Kluvers. He has everything around him that we look for in an ace. His strikeout rate is outstanding. He's holding hitters to a really low batting average. The defense behind him is really good. His home park is pitcher-friendly. Uh, he has a nice bullpen to help him finish off the last couple innings to get him wins. I think there's everything there for, uh, for owners to pay the premium cost for Chris Archer uh, if they're looking for an ace on the trade market. I was just looking at his strikeout totals. Last year in 32 games, he struck out 173 batters, which is a pretty nice contribution to your strikeout category in category-based fantasy. And In fact, in most uh, fantasy formats, strikeouts at work. This year, in barely half the number of starts, 18 starts, 141. So he's only 30 strikeouts short of his entire total last year, and he may have 14 or 15 more starts. Sure, and, and as we talked about earlier, the uh, you know trusting certain organizations that they can develop talented pitchers. He's a talented pitcher. The Rays have had great success developing talented pitchers. I think this is the time to buy in. If you can, because uh, I think the secret might be out on Chris Archer that this kid really knows what he's doing out there and is not going to come cheap, I don't, I don't expect. And finally, in the National League, Fred, who's a pitcher who seems to be an outlier and is he a factor of fluke? Uh, sure, I'll take uh, John Lester. And I'll take him as a fact on, a, on the negative side. Um, I think that John Lester, what we're seeing right now, is really what he is. Maybe he could be a little bit better, but I think pretty much what we're seeing so far this season is what he is. Uh, his career whip is somewhere in the range of 128, something along those lines. And uh, that's not really, you know, that's not very good. It's not even helpful in a mixed league these days with pitching being so effective. Um, last year, he really took his game to another level. I think that's the outlier. Owners who paid for him this season expecting an ace with a 1.1 type of whip. 
uh, are disappointed, and I think justifiably so. But but I think this is really what what we should expect from him: good strikeout rate. You know, he's going to hang around in ball games. He's going to win some games. Cubs are an improving team, but owners who think of him as a number one or two starter in mixed leagues, I think that's too high. He's a, he has more name value than he does actual fantasy production. This, I think, might even stem back years ago when he was in the Boston organization. You remember he had that struggle with cancer and he survived and all of a sudden became the feel-good story in, in baseball. And uh, I think I wonder if that kind of thing spills over into fantasy baseball where you're just rooting for the guy. And so if he has a good year, you think, aha, he's put it all together, as he did last year with a 246 ERA and a 110 whip which was completely out of character for his entire career. His whips year over year are 120 or higher. He falls down to 110. Everybody says he's turned the corner. And really, if you were being realistic about it, you'd have to say, hmm, is this really an indicator that he's done something new or different? And it turned out not to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, going back to his time in Boston, I think even fantasy owners aren't immune to overrating the pitchers who win those big Red Sox-Yankees games during those rivalry years. You know, a few years ago, and he was certainly in the in the thick of those. And you know, you really those guys really get talked up as aces when sometimes there's players, your pitchers, you know, pitching in smaller markets who are delivering better numbers. It is interesting. Over the last three years, we can say what what John Lester has been is a pretty effective innings eater who's not actually that great in, in terms of his numbers. Uh, over the three years, including that splendid year last year, a 3.65 ERA, a 1.26 WHIP. And his strikeouts about eight per nine innings. None of these are elite numbers. That's slightly better than than league average. So uh, John Lester's uh, troubles this year. I think you're right. I think these look like this is what John Lester is. And last year was definitely the weird year. Yeah, I agreed. He's a number three, you know, mixed league starter. All right, Fred. Thanks very much. This has been uh, tremendous. I really do appreciate it. Where can listeners of Baseball HQ Radio find out more from Fred Zinke? Sure. Um, they can check out uh, my writing every day um, at MLB.com uh, slash fantasy. Um, and uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, like you said earlier, uh, at Fred Zinke MLB. Fred, thanks a million for doing this. We'll try to catch up with you again later on in the year. Yeah, definitely. Fred Zinke is the lead fantasy writer for MLB.com. Next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, our playing time segment, and frequent flyers coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. So we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. 
and let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information like our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessment Columns, Performance Validation in Facts and Flukes, Roster Changes in Playing Time Today and Tomorrow, and there's lots more. We also provide daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, team coverage and minor league scouting, and of course we have those projections and all the other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league. Right now at the site, in playing time today roster analysis, Phil Hertz looks at the National League East, including the ramifications of the surprising demotion of Marcel Ozuna by the Miami Marlins, as well as Steven Strasburg's latest DL stint and what that means for the Washington Nationals. In our Facts and Flukes performance validation analysis, Ryan Bloomfield looks at the resurgent Joey Votto, the consistent Cole Hamels, the growing David Peralta, and others. And our BaseballHQ.com Miners team looks at the mid-season top 50 prospects. Quite a few movements on that list. It's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our regular Tuesday commentaries. BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon is taking a break this week, so there'll be no Minor League Minute, but we do have frequent Flyers comments right around the corner. And now it's our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or less playing time. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the moving pieces in Tampa Bay's rotation. There's a lot of moving pieces in Tampa Bay's rotation right now as they're in the midst of getting some reinforcements to bolster the staff. Matt Moore returned earlier this week from Tommy John surgery and Jake Odorizzi, coming back from an oblique suffered in early June, is expected to join him this upcoming week. Odorizzi was off to a fantastic start to the season with a 2.47 ERA and a 102 whip, and it was mostly supported by an excellent walk rate, triple-digit BPV, and a 4.2 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Both Odorizzi and Moore's returns will have some ripples in the Tampa rotation. Matt Andres was already bumped in favor of Moore as he was optioned to AAA Durham at the end of June. Andres posted an impressive 3.24 ERA in 42 innings with Tampa this year, which was highlighted by an impressive 50% ground ball rate. But Andres' soft-tossing 5.8 strikeout per nine, 8% swing strike rate, limit his overall potential as a major leaguer. Odorizzi's replacement still hasn't officially been named by the team at this point, but the writing's on the wall that it's probably going to be Alex Colome. Colome has the worst ERA on the current staff with a 470 mark through 13 starts, and he also has the worst skills in the rotation as well. Colome's 451 expected ERA and his 38 BPV are well below what we like to see from a reliable starting pitcher. So we expect Tampa to come out of the All-Star break with a starting five of Chris Archer, Nate Carnes, Erasmo Ramirez, Moore, and Jake Odorizzi, with Colome and Andres losing out. There are certainly injury risks here, though, as Moore's TJ risk speaks for itself, and Erasmo Ramirez has been dealing with a groin issue. Andres is probably the next man up should something occur, and he's good enough to stick in deeper league formats. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every Tuesday. Now it's time for our frequent Flyers commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent Flyers are Clint Robinson, Eric Johnson, and Micah Johnson. And here to tell you all about it is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Does life get better at 30? It certainly has for 30-year-old Washington Nationals rookie outfielder and first baseman Clint Robinson, who was drafted by the Kansas City Royals in 2007 in the 25th round. A career 302 hitter in the minors, Robinson is definitely making the most of his opportunity with the Nationals, and he's the first of three frequent flyers we'll profile this week who may be flying under the radar in your league. Robinson batted 292 in 21 games for the Nationals in June, including hitting three home runs. His fourth homer came in last Friday's game against Jake Peavy. In fact, over the last 31 days, Robinson has created almost eight runs per game on average and has produced an above-average linear-weighted power index of 131. Don't get too excited, though. BaseballHQ.com projects Robinson's XBA to be only 249 this season, signaling possible regression. Next, let's talk about a potential valuable second-half call-up in the Chicago White Sox organization. Our second frequent flyer is Sox pitcher Eric Johnson. A second-round pick by the White Sox in 2011, Johnson currently leads all AAA pitchers with 96 strikeouts and 85 innings pitched. Those numbers translate to an average of over 10 strikeouts per game, or more specifically, a 10.16 dom. Johnson's command and control ratios of 3.5 and 2.8 respectively show that he is striking out three times as many batters as he is walking and that he is allowing less than three walks per game on average. Those are elite numbers according to BaseballHQ.com that suggest the best pitchers should have a dom above 7, a command ratio above 3, and a control rate of 2.8 or less as a benchmark for success. With those numbers, look for Johnson to join a White Sox starting rotation that currently ranks second in the American League in strikeouts, sometime in the second half after the All-Star game. Finally, staying on the south side, our last frequent flyer this week will join teammate Eric Johnson as a member of the International League All-Star team for the upcoming AAA All-Star game. High on May preseason draft list because of his speed, Chicago White Sox second baseman Micah Johnson is currently batting 300 with 15 stolen bases and 45 games for the Charlotte Knights, the White Sox AAA affiliate. Demoted in mid-May after batting 270 with only three steals in 27 games and struggling on defense in Chicago, Johnson has shown improvement at the AAA level by batting 295 with two home runs in June. More importantly, he's stolen 12 bases in 14 attempts last month. With the White Sox currently ranked last in the American League in stolen bases and runs scored, it may be only a matter of time until Johnson regains the starting second base job in Chicago, especially with Carlos Sanchez batting only 163 through his last 30 games, despite playing excellent defense. Yes, the White Sox may be looking for a jump start the second half of the, of the season. And if your team is looking for a jump start the second half of the season, consider adding Clint Robinson, Eric Johnson, and Micah Johnson. 
our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio on Tuesday every week. Hey, cut that out. Sorry, Mr. Davitt. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 40 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout edition of our show. It was MLB.com lead fantasy writer Fred Zinke, also the most active trader in Tout Wars. Fred is a great guy, a heck of a trade maker, and a very successful player, and he's about as knowledgeable about this game as anyone in it. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield, and our frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with BaseballHQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and be sure to take advantage of our Gmail account, bhqradio, all one word in lowercase, at gmail.com. You'll be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular news and notes edition featuring Todd Zola. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.